Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
somehow do you realize that as early as 40 AD, people started saying, you know, maybe the Bible's not anything that it really means. It was 350 years ago. And yet it was another 100 years before they really knew what the Bible meant. And it was 400 years after the first Christians before anybody said, you know what, maybe it doesn't really mean. Probably Christians should have some Jews. 400 years after that. So then, another 200 years after that, they said, you know what, probably Christians shouldn't have anybody. The problem is, at that point, it was 600 AD, it was just 400 more years before it really meant anything. So then it was 1400 AD before in Europe they started actually believing. So no, no, no Christians were there for 400 years. And yet, another 60 years and no Christians. And our conversation 50 years ago and no Christians is now
the supernatural realm, being inspired by it, knowing that it's Jesus, and yet I have to put boundaries on it, make it a doctrine, and say, God has to use this way to bless me and bless my family. That is the law of history. And so whenever God reveals things about his nature, what we see in this Bible is that there is an invitation that's really, really important. When God reveals himself by doing something, it is an invitation to know him in that way and be present with him in that way. So it is never for the intent of the galvanization of an experience to set doctrine on that relative. It's the it's always the intent for us to see and know his character in a certain way. So, as an example, if we are short on money but know the answer, and God gives us money to give an answer, the intention of that, or actually the person does that work, that's not intended to then cause us to have the one correct answer for two prayer of how anybody else that needs it can get their answer. The intent is always to invite us into an understanding of his character and nature that he's good and faithful. So that the next time we're in need, we'll know he's good and faithful. It's always a redefining or an uncovering of who he is. But if we allow that to be something where we stop and don't invite the new mystery to know him in other ways, what happens is the next time he tries to do something, he tries us to put mud on the guy's eyes rather than put our hand on the guy when he is there. Because it's not about the formula. It's always about his character and his nature. That's what he's trying to reveal. So every time that he does something in that experience, in that experience, it's an invitation to know him. It is so within every universe, every universe, so within this universe, there's an invitation for us to know God within that universe. It's kind of how we're human. It's about him. It's about his nature. It's about his character. And so within that, we look at these miracles as temporary um, interventions. They're not temporary interventions of, of some um, uh, deity that exists in our life that every once in a while decides to get involved and try to fix something. If that's how God works, the Holocaust would have been a great opportunity. If that's how God does things, we've got issues. And frankly, the church's misinterpretation of that is the reason that the world that really takes off when we hear of the church of God or a good covenant of God or a good Pentecostal. It's never that he doesn't do those things. See, that's the tension. The tension is not that God doesn't answer or solve something. But the, the idea, because he does that, but the idea is that it's not about the lost cell phone in the first place. It's always about the invitation to know his nature and his character. But when we make it about the lost cell phone and the fact that somehow my kink system was tallied in a way that, that qualified me for the restoration of my lost cell phone, it causes people to question a divine being that exists on a throne that every once in a while gets confused enough to intervene. The six billion Jews might have been more important than my cell phone. 
you wonder why you're living in this lie? I'm going to say something that you should not in my notes, that I believe this firmly. One of the most damaging um, doctrines that the church has come up with is that God is in control. It has been one of the most damaging doctrines. Here's the deal. God has all authority. God is not in control. If God was in control, that would mean you are in free will anyway. If God is in control, kids can't cause the holidays. If God is in control, food causes people to eat sicker. If God is in control, thieves rob orphans. But we say that. What, now what we mean is that God can use these things. But the way it comes across to people when you say God is in control is that he's a puppet master pulling strings and he causes bad things to happen and you're just not smart enough to get it. And that's when people step back and say, you know what? Atheism is easier to get than that doctrine. That doctrine has made more atheists than anyone else. And actually, that's not a statistic, but it says that that type of evangelical extreme doctrine has actually caused a a private poll done so popular that almost 20% of people in the world are atheists. Politics takes place why? Because the house of cards that they've been called to spy they each have their filter of people and they try to get them right. That filter is behind statements about how God is dead and God loves you if God caused you to be an atheist. And they have, it has destroyed people terribly. But the, the other reality of it is, is atheism doesn't have to be right all the time. Because there's nothing that will make us talk quicker than becoming what I call becoming connoisseurs of atheism. Spiritual connoisseurs are the ones that are turning over at whatever comes up. So the difference between somebody who is hungry and restless and the person who is a connoisseur is the hungry, restless person will eat the savory things because they're starving. And the connoisseur says, I want to eat this because I'm hungry. And the problem becomes when they become connoisseurs of the spirit, and this is, this, there is a thing that happens that the more you've tasted, once you've tasted the good stuff, I get it, you don't want any of the junk. And there's an element of value to that because you're not going to get it. But I promise you that hunger coupled with humility is the only breeding ground for revival. Hunger and humility. Hunger that says, I'm desperate, and humility that says, I'll eat whatever you serve. The 
the problem is once we taste of the supreme, we just have to start doing things that we think, I, it's got to come like this, it's got to taste like this, it's got to look like this, it's got to sound like this. It has to come in this form to this particular form. And so familiarity then follows that up and says, well, I'm okay with that to a point. And, and one of the things that God does with the beauty of the Eucharist in this vein is he allows people who in by our recognition, by our um, designation, don't qualify to often be those that carry his word in the Eucharist. And so he will put people in our path that are, are annoying to us or loud or quiet or whatever of that, or they are rich or they're poor or they are whatever it might be. They're an atheist or they're a Muslim or they're a Mormon or they're a Baptist or whatever it might be. And he'll use, he'll put his word in their path to see how willing we are to take Jesus to the point. The problem is we have this radiance and we become, in my opinion, Fear-based to where we've been told that only the people that believe like me can I connect to and talk about and, and hear from and listen to. And so we have this kind of isolationist thing that says, well, these are the people I listen to because I know they believe like me. One of the most incredible things that happened to me was about 10 years ago, we sat at a prayer meeting in Lansing and looked at my pastor. And I argued with him about my anger and brought down. You might as well have told me to kill my aunt and throw it in the brook and I'm going to die because that was terrifying. And what I found was, was there, um, it, it was specifically this book, that the, the vision that, that this individual had that he had had the experience of God saving him in Lansing. And I know the argument immediately because I, I, I said it was, well, they're not even spirit-filled. What if this guy can get that and not be spirit filled, and it's so far beyond what I've got, and I am a Bible-thumping snob by my professional qualifications? Who am I? Who in the world am I? But we have this radiance, and we say, you know, this person can give me a prophetic word for six months. Man, we look for these things in certain situations, and we don't do others. So why can the person who is in church look at us and give us a somebody that we don't know, that somebody that we know qualified by whatever brand they might be qualified by, and yet somebody in line at the grocery store who we don't know says one little thing, and we just take them out of the window. Why? Because he's doing something else there, and he's saying, will you allow familiarity to keep you from seeing what it is I'm doing? And Jesus, we see this example based system, we really do have this thing that says, it's me and only me that matters. He says, taste and see. And he always causes this, this thing. In fact, I, I, I made a note about this. Even our emphasis on remembering and retaining what we hear and sound is out of focus. 
that some of the deepest things I have ever found, known, and experienced in God have been spoken to me through this process. I mean, John, I could go on and on to those places that we found all over the place. It's no longer living by
letting go of faithfulness and giving strength to God in all those things that he does to be acceptable and blameless to the Lord. That's what the Jewish community is here. And I'm sorry, but if the Jewish community looks at you as antiquated or ticked off, you're probably not Jubilean. I mean, I, I drove down to San Francisco and I asked about my grandma. The, the wherewithal to talk with her about the stone and where they were. To, uh, to say it was okay, but I thought this is not okay. So we sealed the doors here for the presence of the Lord and the house that is for my faith and her faith. So please pray. If you don't have joy, you have an anemic or inadequate walk in her presence. It's just that simple. Because in his presence is joy. So if you don't have joy, the real question is, of the Jew that God appointed. It's just that simple. And yet yeah, you can't remove any, you can't remove presence if it's not going to enable them to receive. But they have a tangible thing, a relic after the fact that the degree of joy that we walk in is probably equal to the degree of presence that we have. Come on, God, we need you. So God, give us that. Let's not deal with Jubilees that we need to fix. I promise you, if we talk to others that we need to fix, Eventually, people that we find qualified, we will not be able to serve them. That's how we need to first deal with it. And I pray that we do. Still fasting. Let's see if we can keep this every day. what God does. That is his job at all times. So within that, we can separate. Within that, we can say, Father, I don't have an opportunity to serve you. Lack of joy because I know your presence is here. Would you pray for me? God help us. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.com. Thank you.